0: listening to the bible 126 show How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hi, I'm Ron Matson, and welcome to Learn the Bible in 24 Hours with Dr. Chuck Missler. Chuck will be taking you through some interesting oversights of the Bible and showing you some amazing facts. For more information on how you can join this group, click here. Well, we are in hour 12 of Learn the Bible in 24 hours, in which we're going to take a quick survey of 12 so-called minor prophets. And uh, we, of course, are in the post, uh, the exile and post-exile time period and uh, we're going to focus in here on uh, these 12 and try to put them in perspective for you. Uh, we have Hosea who spoke to the um, northern kingdom. That's confusing because Hosea came from the south, but God commissions him as, you, as you'll see to take a message to Jeroboam II and the northern kingdom. And Hosea's book is going to be very important because I see a real parallel between his situation and our own. Amos is also uh, from the south going against the uh, northern kingdom to take his messages. Um, Obadiah is uh, in the time of Jehoiakim, but his message really goes to the, to Edomites and so forth. Jonah is preaching to the uh, Assyrian Empire prior to them finally taking over the northern kingdom. So you need to understand that Jonah's reluctance to go there was because he was a patriot. He knew they were the traditional enemy of Israel and we'll deal with that when we get there. And Micah is in times of Ahaz, roughly contemporaneous with uh, Isaiah. Uh, Nahum is about a century after Jonah, but again to the Assyrians. So uh, we, uh, then we have Habakkuk uh, and uh, see it's confusing because the, the order that they're in your Bible are not chronological, nor are they clustered by the people to whom they were speaking. And so, uh, the the, the order is what it is. Uh, So we have uh, Zephaniah who is uh, well before uh, Jeremiah, between Isaiah and Jeremiah. And uh, Haggai uh, is uh, one that speaks to the uh, uh, rebuilding of the temple in the days of Ezra. And uh, Zechariah is in the days of Nehemiah, just prior to the end, much, he says much about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then we have Malachi who closes the Old Testament period. Following Malachi are 400 years, sometimes called the silent years between the Old and the New Testaments. But they're not really silent because as I've mentioned before, they are detailed for you in the 11th chapter of Daniel. They're written down in advance in large measure. But let's get to Hosea. His focus is the apostasy of the northern kingdom. And he was to the northern kingdom what Jeremiah was to the southern kingdom in a sense. And uh, from Jeroboam II to the Assyrian invasion is approximately 50 years. And uh, uh, between the death of Jeroboam II uh, the, and the Assyrian invasion, uh, while Hezekiah still uh, ruled in Judah, he murdered uh, the son of Jehu, which ends the Jehu dynasty. Then Shalem slays Zechariah, who only lasts 6 months. Then Manaheim slays Shalem and Pekah kills Bechaniah, the son of Manaheim. And then Hosea, uh, a guy by the name of Hoshea uh, slays Pekah. So you've got just murder after murder after murder. Uh, dynasty after dynasty after dynasty, continuing. So you got what? One, two, three, four, five, six. There's six or seven dynasties right here in this profile. Golden calves were, of course, erected at Bethel and Dan. They're originally just symbols, but they, of course, lead to nature worship and child sacrifices and so forth. Uh, just as we are today, same thing happening. Um, they sacrificed their children on idols of bronze. Uh, We found a way to sacrifice children in the most holy place of all, the womb of the mother. But uh, the book of Hosea, the first few chapters are a prologue where he takes a, uh, a, an adulterous wife and through whom he has three children that God names prophetically, has them named prophetically. His focus of his book is national sin, that it's intolerable and that it will be punished. That's basically his theme. But uh, she, her first, her first child is um, named Jezreel, which means either scattered or sown of God. Uh, the, it's, uh, these are homonyms really. Uh, in other words words that sound alike but mean different things. God will either scatter or God will sow in a constructive sense. And uh, the house, the reigning house of Israel succeeded to the throne through blood of Jezreel. Uh, it was the site of uh, Jehu's ruthless massacre of the house of Ahab in Jezreel. That's in 2 Kings as we talked about it there. And in the future, it would be the scene of Israel's ultimate military demise. And um, Jezreel is the plain of Esdralon. It's uh, 10 miles in breadth from the Mediterranean at Mount Carmel, roughly, to the Jordan, from the Galilee to the mountains of Ephraim. And uh, it was the great battlefield of Gideon, you may recall. It became a symbol of national disgrace and and defeat as it had been uh, after Saul's death. And of course, it's also proximate to the Battle of Armageddon. So it's a very key site. But uh, then he, the two children are named Lo Ruimah. Lo means no in Hebrew, Lo Ruimah means unloved, and the other one is not my people. So he, uh, God has Hosea named these two children to represent a prophetic message, of, speaking of Israel. You're unloved and you're not my people. This is God's way of getting their attention. The good news, so I don't leave you with that, before it's over, God will say, God, then will I say to them, um, which were not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God." So that'll be repaired before it's over. They will become Ruma and Ami rather than Low ruma and Low ami and, uh, But Hosea's message is one we really want to understand. No other messenger gives so complete an outline of the ways God deals with His earthly people. God suffers when His people are unfaithful to Him. It's astonishing to realize that the Creator of the universe can suffer. Can be grieved. You know, people say, the Holy, you know, you think of the Father and the Son, what about the Holy Spirit? We tend to think of the Holy Spirit is sort of a, a force or something. No, it's a person. The Holy Spirit loves you. How do I know that? Because He's grieved. He, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. These, the, these persons have feelings. God suffers when His people are unfaithful to Him. But God cannot condone sin. That's one of the restraints on His nature. God will never cease to love His own and consequently He seeks to win back those that have forsaken Him. That's the message that comes through, that God cannot condone sin, but He does seek to win back those that will, that, that, that have forsaken Him. Now the northern kingdom, we need to understand the northern kingdom to understand where we stand. The northern kingdom had the, under Jeroboam II was one of the most prosperous periods in their history. Their standing army had recovered all the territory previously lost. They enjoyed unparalleled material prosperity. Many of them had two homes and so forth. If you read through the text you'll recognize they're very, very prosperous. From their point of view it was the best of times. God's indictment, He has Hosea from the south go up there to give him his indictment. accuses them. They had exchanged their loyalty to their heritage for pagan worship. Well, that makes me uncomfortable. Let me guess. Aren't we doing the same thing? The results in the Northern Kingdom was the lowest ebb of immorality they'd ever seen. Widespread adultery, social injustice, violent crime, religious hypocrisy, political rebellion, selfish arrogance, spiritual ingratitude. That's the whole ball of wax. The worst it was, had ever been. So g- this is their predicament. It was the best of times in their eyes, but it was the worst of times in God's eyes. You can't help but remind of the opening line of Charles Dickens' famous novel, *Tale Two Cities*. Best of times, it was at the same time as the worst of times. All how you look at it. Hosea's <coughs> message is to let them understand how it looks to God. Although a loving and caring God had provided their abundance and prosperity, their sin, disloyalty, and abandonment of Him will force Him to vindicate His justice with judgment. Oh boy. Thus, God is going to use their enemies as His instrument of judgment. Shortly they will be history and shortly they were. Not long after Hosea's message, the Assyrian Empire wiped out the northern kingdom. God used the Assyrians. These are sinful people, but God uses tainted instruments to accomplish His purposes. As if we hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no love, no truth, no intimate knowledge of God in the land. This verse summarizes the situation in the Northern Kingdom that, that uh, in God's eyes, it also provides the backbone verse for my wife's ministry. She published a trilogy of books that have become classics in each of these areas. The Way of Agape, that's understanding God's love. Be Transformed, understanding God's truth. And Faith in the Night Seasons, which is understanding God's intimate knowledge. So this this became her trilogy and and, uh, it has been taught all over the world. So you can check that out if you're interested. But the question about Hosea that I have to insert here, is there a parallel to America? You know, our stock indexes are unprecedented highs in general. The people are buying their third and fourth cars. Almost every home has a computer. It's hard to find anyone without a belt, uh, uh, with a phone hanging on it, and uh, fuel costs less than the water we drink. <laughs> Think about it. You buy a bottled water, it's more expensive than you gas. But anyway, we would generally, many people argue, it's the best of times. It's the best of times in our sight. I wonder how it looks to God. Homosexuality is just an alternative lifestyle. We murder babies that are socially inconvenient. We change marriage partners like a fashion statement. We've abandoned the sanctity of commitments in all of our relationships, not just marriages and business. Used to be on Wall Street. My word is my bond. Today it's so Sumi. Even if you're an accountant, if you're one of the referees. God rebuked Israel for their brutality, their murder, and their warfare. We've had Waco, Columbine High School, and so on. New York City has recorded more crimes than England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, Switzerland, Spain, Sweden, the Netherlands, Norway, Denmark, combined. One city and more than a half a dozen countries. Immorality and deceit have also come to characterize the highest offices of our land. Our politics have condoned and covered up more murders than we dare list. Our public enterprises have been prostituted for the convenience of the elite. Our media unabashedly promoted, knowingly uh, promoted falsehoods to try to topple a sitting president during wartime. Our entertainment industry celebrates adultery, fornication, violence, aberrant sexual practices, and every imaginable form of evil. They, They contrive things to make a market. They celebrate these things. We've become the primary exporters of all that God abhors. When you see a movie star abroad bashing America, realize that he or she, their profitability hangs on the foreign movie rights. Think about it. Follow the money. So from God's point of view, you could argue it's the worst of times. Hosea's message to the northern kingdom was, although a loving and caring God had provided their abundance of prosperity, so ours. Their sin, disloyalty, and abandonment of Him will do what? Force Him to vindicate His justice with judgment. Thomas Jefferson said it. I tremble when I recall that God is just and that His justice will not sleep forever. And so Hosea's message was God is going to use their enemies a- as His instrument of judgment and shortly they would be history. I wonder if that's true of us. The great mystery I run when I travel across the country, uh, 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 the question I get most often asked, why hasn't God judged America? Billy Graham summarizes it several decades ago by saying, if God doesn't judge America, He's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a good summary. And I think, uh, I, I, can, I think Genesis 12 verses 2 and 3 is the key to our uh, umbrella, so. Let's change the subject a little bit get back to Hosea. There's a, there is a dictum you learn in seminaries that gets overemphasized. So many of these things are true, but can be uh, over, over shackless. You'll hear many competent scholars tell you that every verse has to be taken within context. It is context, context, context. And that's certainly true to a, to a point, and yet there's some very provocative lessons as we learn from the Scripture. Um, in Matthew chapter 2 verse 15, it says, and there was until the death of Herod, uh, th- this is when Joseph and Mary go down to Egypt with the baby, because Herod would kill all the babes in Bethlehem, and and they and it was there until the death of Herod. That might be fulfilled, which is spoken of by the Lord by the prophet, saying, "Out of Egypt have I called my son." So Matthew is saying that phrase. He's quoting from Hosea, is referring to Jesus Christ. Out of Egypt I've called. That's why they're down there so it, so it fulfills its prophecy. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Well, that sounds pretty good until you get going to Hosea. Here's where he was. He's quoting from Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. What it's talking about in Hosea 11 is the nation Israel. Yet Matthew is applying it messianically. I'm not saying Matthew is wrong, obviously. He knows what he's doing, but it's teaching us a lesson. There are places where you're dealing here with a double reference. The context of Hosea 11, wouldn't, you'd never dream that it was Messianic. It's talking about the nation Israel. But Matthew perceived in that a prophecy that was also true of the Messiah, because the Messiah was called out of Egypt, and Jesus was. He fulfilled that specification. There's all kinds of specifications that Jesus complied with. That many people aren't even aware of. This is, but the lesson here is to recognize that when you talk, when you want to talk about context, the ultimate context is the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. Not just the local verse itself. Now, there is a period called the time of Jacob's trouble. We talked about earlier uh, what has to happen there. In Hosea 5 verse 15, there's a very key verse to reflect on. It's the last verse of Hosea 5 where God says, I will go and return to my place. Well for God to say that, He must have left His place in order to return, right? So it's obviously alluding to Jesus Christ. I will go and return to my place till, there's that one of those magic words again, till, they acknowledge their offense. That's singular and specific. There's a specific offense they need to acknowledge, namely the rejection of their Messiah. I will go and return to my place till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction they will seek me earnestly. The word, uh, sometimes translated early, it could mean earnestly, intensely. But the uh, the purpose of the tribulation is to drive them to the wall to acknowledge their offense of having rejected Jesus. When they do, when they acknowledge it and repent of it, He will return in power and set up their kingdom. That's what's going to be. At the Daniel 12 that Jesus quotes from, to name it, the Great Tribulation is from Daniel 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as it never was, since the t- was a nation, even at that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found, written in the book. So Israel will be delivered. This is a p- commitment in Daniel 12 to Israel. And allu- it ties to the Hosea 515 passage. There's another thing to learn from Hosea in chapter 12, verse 10 where God through Hosea says, I have also spoken by the prophets and I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Use similitudes, huh? What are similitudes? Well, these are rhetorical devices. There are allegories, there are analogies, there are metaphors, there are similes, similitudes, types. These are all different kinds of figures of speech. I've listed here just a half a dozen of them. There's actually 200 different kinds of figures of speech cataloged in the appendix to our Cosmic Codes book. But just understand that God does use, the Holy Spirit does use rhetorical devices. And Hosea 12.10 is your authority. God uses similitudes and all the rest of these. Well, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, that's a simile. The Good Shepherd, that's a simile. The Lily of the Valley. A root out of a dry ground we saw, the fruitful branch. He was without form nor comeliness yet altogether lovely. These are in effect the employment of similes. There are also things called types. These are more ambitious kinds of things. The Ark of the Covenant is a type of Jesus Christ. You need to understand why. Study it and find out why. The sacrifices on the brazen altar are anticipatory of Jesus Christ. The mercy seat in the sanctuary, the propitiation of Jesus Christ. The water from the rock. 1 Corinthians 10.4. Paul tells us that the water from the rock was Christ. The wa- rock that followed them was Christ. And uh, twice they get water from the rock. And there's a whole study around that. The manna from the sky. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am the living water. See, these are all types of Him. The brazen serpent lifted up. Makes no, no sense in Numbers 21 when you run into it there. And yet Jesus explains it to you when you get to John 3. As Moses lifted the, bra- the serpent in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. It's a type, an anticipatory type. The Akedah we is as, as the ultimate type. The Passover lamb, and of course the scapegoat. These are just examples. There are books that catalog types in the Bible. There are hundreds of them. Some very overt, some very subtle. Well, let's get to the book of Joel. We'll shift now. We've got, we got 12 to get through here. Now he's alarmed by invasion of a plague of locusts. He talks a lot about that, and it's God's appeal. Turn ye to me and I will restore, basically is the message of Joel. The day of the Lord is a key phrase in the book of, in the book of Joel. The day of yad Vavhe, as a rabbi might pronounce it, or Yahweh if you will, or whatever. And uh, end of the present age and the unprecedented plagues that will associate with it. He says a lot about the army of locusts, locusts from the north. That's strange because they usually come from the south. He says they're like horsemen. That's interesting. They're like chariots. They're like men of war. I wonder why they're compared two real ones, interestingly enough. My great army. Amos and Revelation use that same term. A very key thing to understand, the locusts have no king according to Proverbs 27 verse 30. That's going to give us a a discovery here when we get to the book of Amos. But one of the quotes from Joel is that Peter takes that's been widely misunderstood. Because in Acts chapter 2 when the, the gift of the Holy Spirit is given to the church, church is born in effect, some people thought they had drunk too much liquor or something, because they're all, you know, babbling in different tongues and so on. And Peter quotes from Joel in the speech. He says, For these are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2 in Acts chapter 2. He says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon f- all flesh. And uh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, and before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Joel's language is pretty extreme and yet Peter is quoting Joel as explaining what happened in Acts 2 and some people are confused by that because, gee, where's the vapor and smoke and, and when is the, you know, the, the uh, uh, earth, uh, 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 these wonders in heaven and earth and so forth and the, and, uh, and the, uh, the moon turned to blood, etc. What he's saying is, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit is started in Acts 2 and it will continue in various forms right up until the day of the Lord, formally. And so this is a quote from Joel and uh, it ties, it, 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 it ties the period that we're in since Acts chapter 2 as the bridge to the big climax which is right on the horizon. That's coming. These things are just as certain as it happened in Acts 2, it's going to happen it just hasn't happened yet. You follow me? This is the, Joel, Joel's uh, expression uh, encompasses the entire period. Let's go to Amos. He was a rustic from uh, Judea, but he also was a prophet to the northern kingdom. He's from Tekoa, which is south of Bethlehem, so he's from the southern area, from the wilderness of Judea. This is where David had his refuge from Saul and so forth. He's a layman. He's a man of the fields. He's not a trained prophet, and yet he's sent up there uh, to Bethel, the center of calf worship and all of that. So Amos is a tough dude. Um, He of course focuses on the ultimate rule of David, um, which is not a popular message up there. He mentions a judgment against what he calls burdens, eight, eight burdens, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab. He takes the Gentiles first. He goes right around their world and takes against them, but then he turns. See, bear in mind, he's talking to the north. So he goes through all their enemies first. Oh, they're applauding. Yeah, let's get those guys goes to Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab. Then He talks about Judah, the place He came from, His own, the southern kingdom. Yeah, they're still but then He gets to Israel. That's His target. He has three sermons and five visions and, uh, uh, and he, but He has a, a, along the way He makes a number of interesting comments. One of Amos 3.7 says, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but He reveals His secret unto His servants the prophets. That's quite a statement. That means that everything God is doing, you will find in the Scripture. Surely that Lord God will do nothing but that which He reveals to His servant, the prophets. And so uh, they're worthy worthy of serious study. But there's also a discovery I want to share with you, because I think there's some lessons in it. In Amos chapter 7 verse 1, your English Bible is translated from Masoretic text and it reads as follows. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, He formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. Really? What does that mean? I have no idea. (laughs) The more you study that, the less sense it makes. What on earth is going on here? Well, this is a, there's an interesting aspect here. I I was studying this for some other reasons one night and I chose, I looked it up in the Septuagint. It turns out one little, slight little mark in the Hebrew changes the whole complexion of the verse. In the Septuagint, this is translated as follows from the Greek version. The Lord hath shown me, and behold, a swarm of locusts were coming. And behold, one of the young devastating locusts was Gog the king. Well this blew me away because for many years I've been troubled by Ezekiel 38 because we have this Gog and Magog thing. Magog is the people. We know who they are. Gog is obviously a title of a leader, but it's very unlike the Holy Spirit to introduce a major person without some kind of preamble, some kind of linkage. and. There are no linkages to Gog that we could find earlier, you know. But here in a- Amos 7.1 we discover that Gog is the king of the locusts. Now that's pretty strange because we know from Proverbs 30 verse 27, the locusts have no king. It's talking about real locusts, natural locusts. The word locust here is being used idiomatically. These locusts have a king and Gog is the king. Now we know this swarm of locusts were coming and old one of the young devastating locusts was Gog the king. In Amos 7.1 it's talking about a herd of demons. Gog is the king of the demons, or at least a large group of them. Well that explains a lot of things. Then you get to Ezekiel 38, Gog and Magog, Gog is a demon leader enticing all this to go on. That also explains why after the millennium, after a thousand years reign of Jesus Christ, there again is a Gog Magog battle. Many people get confused, they see Gog and Magog in in Revelation, they they try to tie it to Ezekiel 38. No, they're totally different circumstances. Magog is a people, and it may be used idiomatically of everybody rebelling at that time. Gog is a demon title. So you can understand how a demon can survive a thousand years. It's not a person. It's a title of a demon king. Anyway, we pick that up by just comparing verse with verse with verse. So, okay. You see, in Revelation 9, verse 3 and 11, it says, "...there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power." And then down in verse 11, it says, "...and they had a king over them, which is the, king, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon." Which means destroyer, basically. But see, here again, and when you study Revelation 9, you realize that these locusts are not locusts as we think of them. They're demon because the locusts have no king according to Proverbs 30, 20, 27. Okay. Let's get on to Obadiah. He's from the southern kingdom. He argues against the enemies of Israel, the destruction of Edom, which is the traditional. Remember Esau and Edom? We went through all that in Genesis. And uh, Esau means red, Mount Seir is the south of the Dead Sea uh, uh, and uh, to the, all the way to the Gulf of Aqaba. And uh, Basra or Petra or Selah is their capital. They were fierce, cruel, proud, and profane. They always cheered for Israel's enemies. If they weren't a direct enemy themselves, they would help Israel's enemies. They are the traditional enemy of Israel. And uh, Numbers 20 really hammers that. They always had an active alliance with whoever was trying to destroy Israel. So Obadiah takes after them. Their sentence, of course, will be poetic justice. They'll be extinct. Indeed they are. Uh, The uh, Nabataeans, uh, Arab Arab tribe uh, is, uh, is, is, is where, if you visit Petra, you'll see the, you know, the tombs and all of that stuff. So see, Edom had indulged in treachery and Edom would perish through treachery. And see, five years after they helped uh, burnt, uh, raise uh, Jerusalem, that is, burn it down, they felt the yoke of Babylon. And thereupon the Nabataeans, the Arabian tribe that occupied Petra, uh, uh, that was their capital. And then later, in about 312 BC, uh, Antigonus, one of the generals of Alexander the Great crushed these people and despoiled Petra. And later the remaining Edomites uh, sustained crushing defeats from Judas Maccabeus in the Maccabean Revolt in the Hasmonean period. and. Uh, Josephus tells us that uh, still later Alexander and completed their ruin. They became absorbed in the desert tribes. Oregon in the 3rd century AD spoke of them as a people whose name and language had perished. So Obadiah's prophecy had been fulfilled. Edom had seized a chance to rob Judah, but Edom would be robbed, and Edom indulged in violence, and Edom would perish by slaughter. Edom sought utter destruction of Israel, and they would be utterly destroyed, and it has been. Edom sought to dis- dispossess Jerusalem and Edom would be dispossessed by the remnant. Now Edom also is a geographic location. Edom, Ammon, and Moab are what we would call today Jordan in terms of geography, but not, but not in terms of, of, uh, uh, of uh, continuing a culture or anything like that. So Edom would be possessed by by the remnant. Okay. So we have Esau and Jacob um, as I- contrast to the natural man. We talked about this when we were in Genesis, you know, the, the, the uh, Esau is always, you know, the red horse, the red dragon, etc. Edom is a form of Adam or Adama or the flesh. Uh, so uh, uh, pride, defiance, ambition, hatred, violence, cruelty, self-deception. They're a type, in effect, of all nations that are hostile to God. Uh, Ishmael and Isaac uh, is the same type, uh, self-life versus spiritual life. All the way through the script, whether it's Cain and Abel or whether it's, uh, it, it, it's uh, Uh, Ishmael and Isaac, it's always the natural man, the flesh versus the spirit. And uh, so we've developed that as we go through slowly, but um, let's turn to the book of Jonah. This well-known story, the storm. Why did he flee? Why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? And this business of the fish, did that really happen in chapter 2? And the city, why Nineveh? What's going on there? Why, why, why why is that an issue? And why do we have chapter 4? You know, it's a great little book with three chapters. Chapter 4 is a weird one, It's mainly jo- uh, Jonah's up there pouting, I knew you'd save those people. Well, <laughs> the reluctant prophet, there's a warning Nineveh, uh, long before, um, later years of Joash and earlier years of Jeroboam II, uh, Nineveh is actually a quadrangle of cities, about 60 miles in circumference, 350 miles, s- uh, square miles, walls 100 feet high, 1500 foot, 1500 towers 200 feet high. Chariots, three abreast could have races on their, on, the, on their wall. Over a million population which was large in, <laughs> in those days. Now is the story of Jonah and the fish true or not? Well Jesus Himself authenticates it. He speaks of that in Matthew 12 and 16. The fish and also the repentance of Nineveh. So He, he, he puts a ribbon on the whole thing. And of course, there, it did, uh, there are also historical equivalents. There have been people that have survived being swallowed by a whale. They've been documented. I won't go through all that here, but it's worth getting into. See Jonah was a patriot. The one reason he didn't want to go, he didn't want Nineveh to be spared. He knew that Nineveh was an enemy of Israel. Isaiah had written prophecies about it back in Chapter 7 of Isaiah. Hosea had written prophecies about it. Amos had uh, got prophecies about it, and uh, so he didn't, he didn't want He didn't want Nineveh spared. He wanted them to be judged by God. God wants them to go there and tell them to repent. Now I won't go through Jonah's prayer, but when you read his prayer, you can build the case that he actually died in the fish and came back to life. It's a technicality perhaps, but there are scholars that believe he actually, that would complete the model with Jesus Christ, who died and was resurrected and He uses Jonah as a sign. Now whether he literally died or came close to death, that's probably a technicality, but there are scholars that would argue that he actually died. But let's get to the real issue. Nineveh was a pagan capital of the world. They were 40 days. God had decreed they were going to be wiped out in 40 days. They were 40 days from ground zero, and Jonah was the reluctant prophet. He didn't want to go there until God explained it to him more clearly, (laughs) and uh, he uh, finally ends up going there. When he goes there, he doesn't give them a market research user-friendly message. He goes through town and says, 40 days and you get yours. Isn't that an appealing message? He was hoping they'd be wiped out. He was doing what God, God told him to warn him, He told him, okay, 40 days guys, and comes destruction. And, uh, you know, there are 10 miracles in the book of Jonah, but the greatest one was not the fish thing. The greatest miracle in the Old Testament is what? The repentance of the There are 10 miracles. The storm, the selection of Jonah's guilty, the sudden subsisting of the storm, the great fish, the fish was at the right place at the right time. The preservation of Jonah through the fish. The ejection safe and sound on dry land. How many whales throw up somebody on the dry land? That's pretty interesting. Then there's the whole business of the gourd and the worms and the east wind that comes in chapter 4. But the main, the biggest uh, miracle of them all is the repentance of the entire city of Nineveh. In 40 days. Can any nation do anything in 40 days? You've got to be kidding. But the king repented on speck. He didn't go through the town like John the Baptist, repent or else this is going to happen. He said, hey, this is going to happen. The king reasoned that just maybe if we change our ways, God may change His mind. So they did and so did God. But it it, it astonishes me that the king would do that on spec. And uh, the sign of Jonah, remember the Pharisees would seek a sign. See the story of this bleached prophet. Uh, he probably, you know, they, they speculate because of the digestive juice. Of, he probably was bleached white. He probably was a real sight walking through town, <laughs> especially when you understand who they worshiped. Worship Dagon, the fish god. Now this is, of course, a sign of Jonah. Jesus Himself identifies Himself with it. The death and burial of Jesus Christ is modeled here as a type. Jonah is also a prophet to the Gentiles. That's interesting. Gentiles. There are a trio of prophets at the end of the Northern Kingdom. Elisha dies and is buried. Jonah dies and goes to Sheol and comes up uncorrupted and Elijah ascends into heaven. That's all kind of, uh, kind of interesting. And uh, Jonah foreshadows Israel's history. So there's also a type you can study on your own, the story of Jonah in in terms of Israel. He was disobedient to the heavenly commission. He was out of his own land. He had a precarious refuge among the Gentiles aboard the ship. Everywhere he was a source of trouble. Yet he was still nevertheless witnessing to the true God. He was cast out by the Gentiles. He miraculously preserved amid their calamities. He calls on Yad He vav He at the last part of it. And on the third day, interestingly enough, there it is again, we find some. You can study these stories and see how they are not only true historically on the one hand, but they also model prophetically some other issues. That's called a type. Let's go on to Micah. Eminent judgments declared by Micah. The Assyrians will strike at Egypt. See, Judah had foolishly relied on Egypt. The Assyrians are going to come through and wipe e- strike at Egypt by going through their n- backyard. So they'll march right through Micah's neighborhood. On the w- uh, and so, but the ultimate blessing will be, f- is promised. The Incarnation is alluded to here, very key verse that you're all familiar with. And the key truth of all this is the ruler is yet to come. And the present repentance is pleaded and he talks a little bit about the last days. But the, one of the verses that everybody knows from Micah, fi, Micah 5.2. But thou Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. We could spend a week on this verse. There's all kinds of things hidden in this verse. Um, the fact that He was pre-existent, that His goings forth have been from eternal, eternity past and so forth. That He's going to come forth to rule Jerusalem and Israel. That's kind of interesting. But this is, pr- the primary point here is it mentions the birthplace of Jesus Christ. Which is, uh, which is linked to the house of David, to the book of Ruth, but uh, in any case, uh, the birthplace of Messiah. And when, when the Magi visit Herod, drive him to panic and say, where is he that is born the King of the Jews? His scribes dig out this verse to identify the town, and indeed you know the story from the book of Matthew. There's also an oft-quoted verse in Micah 6.8, you'll find it hanging on many homes. Um, he hath showed the old man what is good. and. Uh, And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before thy God. That says it all. Many people look at this as a perfect, pricey summary of God's requirements. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before thy God. Very good. Let's go to Nahum. In the the Gospel of John, it says, no prophet come out of Galilee. Remember that? Whoever heard of the prophets coming out of Galilee, whoever said that hadn't read the Old Testament because there are two prophets at least. Jonah was out of the Galilee, and so was Nahum, and both of them were out of the Galilee, and both of them to the, uh, to Nineveh, to the Assyrians. This is about a century after Jonah. Again, they need repentance, Nahum goes there with a message, they don't accept it, so they get wiped out. So we have the doom of Nineveh, the world's greatest city in those days. Capernaum, you've all heard of Capernaum, it's Kapher Nahum, that's the village of Nahum. That's where he came from. And his main message is that Jehovah will not acquit the wicked. It objectifies for all peoples, for all time, the governmental method of God with Gentile nations. God will forgive sin that's repented of. He will not condone sin persisted in. That says it all. God will forgive sin repented of. Not just confessed, but repented of. And He will not condone sin persisted in. And that same God rules the world today. That's why it's important, that's why these lessons have historical context, they have prophetic context, they also have personal application. Every one of them. So in the, in the book of Nahum, it talks about uh, Nineveh's doom is declared, described, and deserved, and the decisive test of the prediction is its fulfillment, and <laughs> it certainly was fulfilled. Do You realize that in the field of archaeology, for centuries, they didn't even believe that Nineveh existed. There was no evidence of it. Alexander went over it, didn't even know it was there. It was buried. Not only lost, it was buried. It was 1849 that scholars made history by discovering Nineveh, digging it up. It's all in Iraq. In the, we, you know, the place that's called today is Iraq, but it's a uh, Nineveh Nineveh really was um, buried. Let's go to Habakkuk. He's agonized, he's perplexed because of the ostensible silence, inactivity, and apparent unconcern of God. He's, and he, from the way he sees it, he uh, He doesn't understand uh, what's going on and why would God use a people even more wicked than Judah themselves? He's talking about God is going to use the Babylonians to wipe out Judah. Babylonians are worse than Judah. He's he's, he's struggling with good and evil and so forth. But in this perplexity about God's apparent silence and the the, the strangeness of God's apparent ways, um, He brings up some very, very interesting things. We're going to go to verse 4 in a minute, the just shall live by faith. and um, he's going to focus on rest in the day of tribulation, but this interesting, many people don't realize how important Habakkuk two four is: The just shall live by faith. This was the catchword that led to the Reformation. A guy named Martin Luther was uh, a very, very diligent, uh, committed uh, scholar and just totally disturbed by his own sin. He was really obsessed with his sinfulness, and he went through all the trappings of the medieval church, all the things that they did in those days to deal with that, and, and it was just getting worse and worse until a monk said, uh, look at Habakkuk 4. And he looked at this verse, the just shall live by faith, and that caused him to wake up and to realize that you can't, no matter what you do in the flesh, it's not going to work that you live by faith, not by abusing yourself and penance or tithing or going to s- services regularly. All those things are of the flesh. The just shall live by faith. And when he realized what that meant, he uh, tried to post some corrections in the denomination he was part of. All they did is excommunicate him and that led to the whole Reformation, but that was the 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 whole byword of the Reformation. It's interesting that was all anticipated by the Apostle Paul. He writes a trilogy of epistles on this verse. The just shall live by faith. Who are the just? Paul's definitive statement of Christian doctrine called the Book of Romans quotes this verse as the key verse and explains justification, which is by faith alone. Well, how should the just live? How shall they live? The book of Galatians is Paul's answer to that one. The just shall live. How shall they live? Galatians 3.11 quotes this verse as the cornerstone to the book of Galatians. How the just shall live. And uh, the just shall live by faith. The great faith chapter, Hebrews 11 is uh, 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 on how the just shall live by faith. So it's interesting that these three epistles, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews are a trilogy Explaining, amplifying the homiletics, if you will, behind and the, and the theology behind Habakkuk 2.4. And uh, some would say, well, that doesn't prove that Paul wrote uh, Hebrews. Well, if Paul didn't write Hebrews, he, even a greater miracle that these different writers architected a trilogy without their knowledge. But could, would stranger things have happened. Let's get to the book of Zephaniah. We're getting down to the wire here. Um, he talks about the wrath coming upon Judah and the wrath upon all nations. He takes the, from west to east, Philistia, and Moab, and Ammon, and then south to north, Ethiopia and Assyria. And uh, after the wrath, there will be healing, conversion of the Gentile nations, and restoration, restoration of the covenant people. Zephaniah also includes, by the way, a little prediction that when Israel returns to the land, they'll speak pure Hebrew. Now that's astonishing because they were out of the land for a good part of 2000 years, and when they returned to the land, Hebrew was reemerged as the uh, language. Many language experts said they never can revive a dead language. Well, if if, uh, Zephaniah was walking down Düsseldorf Street, he could read the menus because it's it's Hebrew he would understand. But, uh, the Minor Prophets. We went through 12. We're going to go through a couple more here yet, but Hosea went to the northern kingdom. So did Amos. Um, Joel, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi to the southern kingdom. And then we have, of course, uh, Obadiah to Edom. Jonah to and Nahum to uh, the Assyrians. So that's the, that's the quick spread of the, the, uh, the uh, minor prophets. Again, they're not in chronological order, nor are they clustered by who they are addressing, but uh, that, uh, that, that's the way they are. These last three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are prophets, uh, prophets post-exile. In other words, they prophesied after the nation came back from Babylon. Haggai is burdened with the rebuilding of the temple, Zechariah and Malachi. Uh, in the days of Nehemiah. Haggai has a message to arouse then support and confirm and assure, all having to do with the trauma going about trying to build the temple. Many lessons in Haggai just about our own personal walk, but his focus is rebuilding of the temple. And uh, the problem that he faced is the prophecy had become a narcotic. What I mean mean by that is that they knew that they were prophetically had arrived, they're rebuilding the temple, so they kicked back. God's going to do this. And there's an analogy in a sense. Many people, you know, who are pre-trib, the rapture's coming uh, and we're under grace and so they just kick back and are not busy about God's work. That's, that's, in that sense, some of these views can become uh, uh, self-limiting. And uh, so this gave way to hopeless inevitability. And that's one of the problems with Calvinism. People, you're you're predestinated to be saved, so okay, uh, it's your problem, You you know. Calvinists often aren't very energetic about evangelistic crusades, because everything's predestined, right? You know, there's an attitude that can come out of some of these views that's not constructive and leads to indifference. And it can come from several points. Any any of these views, however valid they may be, can still give, give excuse to inaction. We need to remember that without Him we can of course, but without us He won't. We need to understand that prayer is God's way of enlisting us in what He wants to do, putting burdens on us that we'll roll up our sleeves and accomplish what He's after. And so that's really what Now, it's a couple of other things that, that you might find interesting in Haggai, just to give you a few highlights here, in Haggai 2.15, it says, Now I pray you consider it from this day upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. In other words, he's talking about the beginning. Consider now from this day upward, from the four-and-twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. That's in Haggai 2.15.18, uh, the four-and-twentieth day of the ninth month, pick that up. In Ezekiel 24, it says, again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, write thee the name of the day, even this same day. The king of Babylon set himself against Jerusalem this same day. So that's the trigger. The other one's the consummation. Let's take a look at this. The ninth year, the tenth month, tenth day of the month. This is dated from 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52, but here's the net of it is. At the very time the Babylonian army was surrounding Jerusalem, Ezekiel in Babylon, hundreds of miles away, was writing that down, the 10th day of Tebeth, 589 B.C. He's documenting it for God's purposes. Later on, when they're finally released and Haggai, you know, they're, they're starting to build a temple, Haggai nails down the date that these, these desolations of Jerusalem ended, the 24th day of Kislev. Well, that's kind of interesting because the interval between these two dates is 25,200 the interval is twenty-five thousand two hundred days. That's seventy years of three hundred and sixty days each. To the very day of the seventy years that Jeremiah had predicted, to the day, to the day. There's, you never use the word approximate in God in the same sentence. I think he. Okay. <laughs> Zechariah. Early prophecies about when the temple was being built, and the later prophecies after they were built, and then a lot by the second coming. He has all kinds of visions. We can't go through all of them. There, some of them are quite enigmatic. Some are quite, very colorful. There's four horses, four horns, four smiths, Then there's a measuring line. Then there's crowning of Joshua the priest. That's a, not Joshua. That's a different Joshua. Obviously, he's a priest. But crowning a priest is messianic. Only Christ is both a priest and a king. And then the, the one about the golden lampstand, the filing ro- The woman in the ephod holds the key, I believe, to the mysteries about Babylon. We'll be talking about that when we get to Revelation and we talk about Mystery of Babylon and the rest of it, and the four chariots and so forth. But there's a couple here that I think is kind of interesting. Here's a a, a prediction in Zechariah 12 verse 2 and 3. You want to be aware of. God says to Zechariah, Behold, I'll make Jerusalem a cup of trembling to all the people round about. In that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be torn in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. You know, that's actually ridiculous. That may have made sense 2,500 years ago, the days of Zechariah, that Jerusalem would be a big issue. But here's a city that has no natural resources, has no rivers, doesn't even have a harbor. Uh, It's no longer on critical caravan routes. There's no reason for Jerusalem to be relevant to anyone, except for religious reasons, and I thought the world is a-religious. Well, not so. cup of trembling to all nations? That's ostensibly absurd on the one hand, and yes, the reality this very night. As we have this discussion this evening. The late lights are burning in every capital of every country on every uh, that are in, that are internationally relevant, struggling as to what position to take regarding the issue of Jerusalem. How interesting that is—that the entire world is struggling over this very issue. The fallacy of the peace process. Notice how I spelled peace: P-I-E-C-E. It's built on a false premise. Ba- the peace process is based on the premise that it's that reducing the size of Israel will bring peace. No. The the enemies of Israel made it very clear. It's not the size of Israel, it's the issue. It's the existence of Israel. They're insisting that Israel give up what they cannot give up. This whole process assures an armed conflict, in fact, probably nuclear. That's exactly what we see shaping up on our near horizon. That's exactly what the Bible lays out. How interesting it is. And we go through all the background of this in briefings on this, and we also try to monitor this for those of you that Stay current with our subscriptions, either our weekly newsletter on the internet, which is free, or our journal that comes out monthly. But let's move on. Zechariah 14 is a very famous passage. We all have heard it one time or another, I'm sure. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when He fought in the day of battle. Whoops! Wait a minute. When did the Lord fight in the day of battle? Well, I can mention one, Joshua 5, the battle of Jericho. It wasn't Joshua, despite the song. Check it out. But He's going to fight again. And He says, And His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley. Half of the mountain shall remove toward the north and half of it toward the south. There is a fault line under the Mount of Olives that's waiting for the pressure of a foot. His. Interesting, interesting, very tangible, very real. The second coming of Jesus Christ, well Christ is going to rule in our hearts. Gee, I sure hope so, but that's not what's talking about here. He's talking about physically coming back and taking over. Indeed He will. There's another verse that's interesting in a number of ways here. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon Me whom they have pierced, ooh, and they shall mourn for Him as one mourneth for His only Son, and shall be in bitterness uh, for Him as one that is in bitterness for His firstborn. I'll pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon Me whom they have pierced. Here's a prediction again of crucifixion. We find it in Psalm 22. We find it all through the Old Testament. Here again we find that He's going to have His piercings as emblems, just as He did before Thomas. Handle me and see. But there's something else about this thing that I think is even more provocative. If you look carefully at this, in, in the in the Hebrew, you'll discover there's an untranslated word. There's a little aleph and a tau between the me and whom. If, if it was tran- it's untranslated. Now the aleph and the tau, when it's collect- connected with a makef to a verb, implies the direct object of a verb. That little Alpha and Tau has four different uses, but uh, and one of them is t- as a, as a um, um, indefinite pronoun, second person, masculine, singular. It's called a hypocatastasis in the Greek, they're putting underneath a hidden but declarative implied metaphor expressing a superlative degree of resemblance, interestingly enough. And, uh, but there's no makef on this one, so it's not the direct object of verb. Another way to read this would be, they shall look upon Me, the Aleph and the Tau, whom they've pierced. The Aleph and the Tau is the Hebrew equivalent of the Alpha and the Omega. They shall look upon Me, the Aleph and the Tau, whom they've pierced. We find that same thing in Genesis 1, by the way. That in the beginning, Bereshit Barah uh, Elohim, and there's an Aleph and a Tau there that uh, uh, can be, might be, an allusion to none other than the one who is the first and the last, the, uh, the Alpha and the Omega of Jesus Christ. There's one other thing in, another little tidbit in Zechariah we'll throw out here. It's the only physical description of the Antichrist I can find in the Bible. Here he's called the idle shepherd, not idle like lazy, idle like a false worship. Woe to the idle shepherd that leaveth the flock. The sword shall be upon his arm and upon his right eye. His arm shall be clean dried up, and his right eye shall be utterly darkened. That's all it says. That's the end of that chapter. Goes on to other subjects. One of these little tidbits. This leader, this false leader, this false shepherd, apparently has got an arm that's useless and a right eye that is lost. And you wonder if that's a physical description. Uh, that leads to taking an identity with Him. If you swear allegiance to Him, you take His mark on your forehead or on your wrist as an identity of allegiance to Him, which if you do that, is a forever barrier to being saved. Much of what the book of Revelation deals with are people who will have this jeopardy of being, uh, uh, having an allegiance with Him. No man will be able to buy, sell, or have a job without His number. But I wonder if this is uh, Anyway, that's, uh, for what it's worth, one of the little tidbits. Let's go to the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. I sometimes say Malachi, the Italian book, but I'm kidding, of course. (laughs) This is the final message to a disobedient people. The ceasing of prophecy with Malachi might account for the segmenting of the initial week of Gable's prophecy of 70 weeks. Remember it was 7 weeks and 3 score and 2 weeks and and 1 of the conjectures. Why is it broken up that way? They're adjacent, so it doesn't matter. but. Uh, It may be that 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 is the the, the issue here, but in any case, you know it's interesting uh, when Jesus has His um, temptations by Satan. He makes the point you'd never tempt God. All through the scripture you can find admonitions that you never put God to the test. And that's certainly, you don't test God, you don't dare Him. But there is an exception and this exception is fascinating. There is a dare that God gives you. God dares you in a very peculiar way. In fact He proposes here, what He proposes here is the solution to every financial problem. Wow. We've got to take a look at this. In Malachi 3.10, God says, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the LORD of hosts. If I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. God is daring you to put Him to the test. He says, prove me now herewith. You know, this is an astonishing verse, that the God of the universe would put Himself in a box. He's saying, if you do this, call my bluff, I dare you to tithe, because if you do, I will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing and not be room enough to receive it. And you can find many, many people who will swear to this, but that doesn't matter. You need to find out for yourself. You need to find out for yourself. What an interesting dare. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the LORD of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven, and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it." Quite a commitment. Prove me now herewith. Well, we have the silent years between the Testaments, deserve some quick comments. We talk about Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 BC, the abomination of desolation, a historical event that is very important to understand because Jesus makes allusion to it as a trigger of when to, when to split out of Jerusalem. That event by Antiochus Epiphanes, of course, led to the Maccabean Revolt in 165 B.C., which led to the rule of the Hasmoneans. And that was subsequently followed by the Roman conquest, appointing Herod the king. And that, uh, uh, you know, closes the uh, 400 years of silence for Malachi until an angel visits Zechariah with an announcement. You need to understand now, we've just finished the Old Testament. The Old Testament is incomplete. It has unexplained ceremonies. All kinds of sacrificial rituals that need to be explained. It has unachieved purposes. There are all kinds of covenants yet to be fulfilled. There are unappeased longings. B- the Old Testament is full of those. And unfulfilled prophecies. For, there are 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ's first coming. For every one of those, there's at least 7. At l- well over 2,000, somewhere between 2,000 and 3,000 details about a second coming, and they will be fulfilled. Jesus challenges you, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of Me. And when He says Scriptures here, He's really talking about the Old Testament. In John 5, that's what they had in their hands was the the Septuagint. Search them, for you think, in them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of Me, He he, he says. Well, in subsequent sessions, Hour 13, we'll go through the Messianic thread. We'll talk about the Messianic thread in total. We'll also demonstrate how sure can we be of these things. Lord Kelvin says, we don't know much about something until you can measure it. Okay, look, can we measure our confidence? We'll go into that in Hour 13. Hour 14, we'll talk about the New Testament, where it came from, how it was put together. Many people, many Christians are woefully ignorant of that. And in Hour 15, we'll take the Gospels. We'll actually go in one hour, we'll put all four Gospels together and trace a, a, a reconciliation of the whole package geographically. So with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the privilege You've given us to be able to meet without hassle, without pers- persecution, without interference. We realize that that's a unique blessing. Father, we just pray that You'd help us take advantage of these days, help us to discover the treasures You've hidden here for us. And above all things, Father, we pray that You'd illuminate that path before us. That through Your Holy Spirit and Your Word, You would make it ever more clear what You would have of each of us in the days that remain. As we seek to be more fruitful stewards of the opportunities You've brought before us. and As we commit ourselves without any reservation into Your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Amen.